This week, I'm in the room with James Hamilton discussing his book, Work and Our Labor in the Lord. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 56. My name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm the senior pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel in Hickory, North Carolina. And In the Room is your opportunity to listen in on my conversations with pastors, authors, and artists about how they do what they do. And this week, uh, I am on with James or Jim Hamilton, and we're discussing his new book published uh, through Crossway in their Short Studies in Biblical Theology series. It's called Work and Our Labor in the Lord. And as always, I'm here with Scott Holthouse. Scott Hizzy Hizzy. I think yep. that's going to be my uh, podcast DJ name. I like that. That'll be good. So yeah. we're talking about work this week, and uh, thanks for not interrupting me. I wanted to this so time. bad. I know. I could feel and it. And I also hope that you said uh, uh, Senior Pastor Harvest Bible Chapel, Hickory, home of the Crawdads. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do it this but week. That's okay. It'll catch on, though. Yeah, it will. All right, so we're talking about work this week, and so let's talk about first job ever. First job ever, I worked at a health club called uh-huh. the Center Club in Libertyville, Illinois. Yeah, but you weren't like something cool like a trainer. Didn't you hand out towels? No, no, I was not a trainer <laughs> by any means. I was like 15. Yeah. And I handed out towels. I washed the towels, but I also attended the locker room. Oh. And right now I'm thinking about how to tell a story in a way that does not discuss most of our audience. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, we did talk about biting nails and picking toenails, so I think that ship sailed last week. Well, <laughs> we're about to take it to a new level. <laughs> All right. So one time, I, and this is when I knew this career path wasn't for me, <laughs> I was busy washing, fold, washing and folding towels, which is what I did all day long. Uh-huh. And um, I, I was notified that there was something to clean up in the locker room. Mind you, this health club was... <laughs> I don't know if I... All right, I keep going. This health club was very... uh, It had a a diverse clientele. Uh Older gentlemen Uh would come and would sit and hang out, and an older gentleman was sitting uh, on the chair right by the hot tub, and maybe he believed he was in the bathroom, but he was not. And he he went a little, (laughs) and they called me to come clean that up. With him still there? No, he oh, had, he had he, moved, he had at moved this point. and it was like, yeah, I was, I'm sure my boss or somebody saw it, and they're like, well, I'm certainly not going to clean that up. Let's call the 15-year-old <laughs> towel boy to come do it. <laughs> and that's when I started uh, planning my, my future career. That yeah, was different. Yeah, that was good. What was your I, first job? I, well, I ironically, I also worked in the laundry sector. And uh, <laughs> You should start a dry cleaning <laughs> business. I worked at a resort, and I'm, if you could, this is you know, all audio, but there should definitely be air quotes around the word resort. Uh, I will not say the name, uh, but it was when I lived in, I shouldn't have said the name either. <laughs> yeah. I already made that mistake. Sorry. I was in, it was when I lived in Rapid City, South Dakota. I was in high school and it was, they use the term resort because they had like a couple professional grade golf courses attached to it, okay. but it was like a camping resort <laughs> and not like glamping. That yeah. is really awesome. This was like, you could, they had cabins. And so my twofold task was I cleaned cabins and uh, I also was like the main laundry person, That's awesome. which I was awesome at. And, uh, I had a boss that sat downstairs and she watched soaps all day. And so from the ages of about 15 to 16, I was far more plugged into to daily soaps than what I should have been. <laughs> what any other yeah. kid your age was. Yeah. So is that your worst job ever? Um, other than working for me? 
I think, you know, I think so. It wasn't that bad. I worked with a, uh, older lady from, uh, like somewhere in Eastern Europe area. Okay. I'm not quite sure. Way and to just she, sector that whole, that well, whole area. Well, of I don't want to say she was like, for sure, like Polish or something, yeah. but she was awesome. She was fun. She was kind of sassy, which I appreciated. I like sassy. Yeah. And I got to use the facilities for free. So that's nice. I'd go and play. Actually, me and my mom went and played racquetball a couple times there. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. My, remember, I was 15. I wasn't right. a grown man yet, yeah. so it wasn't. A, it was my mom fun. and I took uh, tap dance together. <laughs> And I was uh, 17. That's worse. Yeah, it's way that's, worse. It's worse. It's terrible that I took it in the first place at age 17 with yeah. a bunch of like six-year-old girls in tutus. But what I love is we both have uh, experience in the laundry mm-hmm. um, yep. realm. The laundry and sector. We both have done activities with our mothers at maybe maybe a bit too old. Yeah, probably age. a little, little too old for that. Yeah. So Cool. In other news, <laughs> uh, this was a great, um, I'm really impressed with this uh, series that Crossway is doing. I believe that uh, Ray Ortland has a book that he's done with them on marriage. Um, Graham Goldworthy did one called The Son of God and the New Creation. So it's a great series, super accessible uh, for people. Uh, this one uh, is on the topic of work, which I think is very, very helpful. Yeah. Uh, I like especially the way that it dispels the misnomer that work is a result of the fall and this idea that when Jesus comes back, there won't be any more work yeah. and work is actually a good thing. Yeah. And how do we redeem it? And so we talked about all of that in this conversation. So come on in the room for my conversation with Jim Hamilton. Well, Jim, thanks so much for coming on In The Room. I appreciate it. It's great to to have you on. Um, I just had the uh, pleasure of reading your new book, Work and the Labor and Our Labor in the Lord. Looking forward to talking to you about that. But first, I don't know that much about you, and some people listening probably don't know a ton about you. So uh, to start, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What's your story? How'd you come to faith? What's your ministry path been like? Sure. Thanks for First, thanks for having me uh, on the program. Glad to be with you. I grew up in Arkansas. My dad is, uh, he's now retired, but he was a coach, high school teacher. My mom was an English teacher, and they're believers, and they always had us in Southern Baptist churches in Arkansas. And then I went to the University of Arkansas. Um, I played baseball for a couple of years there, and then um, uh, after two years, they cut me from the team, which was which was okay. both difficult okay. and one of the best things that's that could have happened to me. And um, that allowed me to study what I wanted to study in school. And um, when I graduated there, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And then after Dallas, I came here to Southern to do the PhD. And, um, and then after graduate, graduation from Southern, I uh, moved to Houston to teach at the Houston campus of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Okay. And got pulled okay. in, into a church plant by a group of people. So um, it was the, it was in Houston that I began to both teach and pastor, um, and then uh, after five years in Houston, I was invited to return here to Louisville to join the faculty at Southern. And um, when I we 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 came back in August of two thousand eight, and in April of two thousand nine, um, a local church here that didn't have a pastor called me to be their pastor. So I, I both pastor and teach here in Louisville as well. How, how difficult, no wonder you wrote a book on work, since you have two yeah. full-time jobs, I feel like you should be an expert on that. What are, what are some of the unique challenges that come with uh, both working in uh, academics and pastoring in the local church? 
You know, when when I started at Kenwood, there the vote on me to call me as pastor was twenty seven to one. Wow! So it was very small, and it was part time. Yeah. Um, we've grown to the point where we're we're in the mid two hundreds somewhere now, and um, um, I think the uni- the challenges are um, the church is 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 growing, uh, but my time uh, pockets remain the same. Yeah. And so, uh, so it works well uh, teaching the Bible at church, or I'm sorry, at school, and then preaching the Bible at church. And I just try to line things up so that what I'm writing on is also what I'm teaching on, and hopefully also what I'm preaching on. So this book actually, um, once once I uh, got to the place where I had signed a contract on it for Crossway, it started with a series of sermons on work and, and, and our labor in the Lord at Kenwood Baptist Church. That was sort of the, the kernel that eventually grew into the book. And and uh, we have five children, and um, uh, our oldest is 13, and we're uh, he's playing ball, and they're in piano lessons, and they're, you know, my daughter's doing ballet, so we're all over the place. So the only way that for this to work is for me to line things up, you know, so that what I'm what I'm teaching is what I'm preaching and what I'm writing. Yeah, that's good. Well, I do want to talk about the book. Um, it's in this uh, series, the short studies on biblical theology that Crossway is publishing, which is a tremendous idea, and some of the other books in that are fabulous as well. But for people that may not be familiar, I know you teach biblical theology as well. This book is a work of biblical theology. But for people who may not be super familiar that might hear that and think like, well, I thought all theology was biblical. What, what, how, do you, how do you define biblical theology? How do you differentiate it from, say, systematic theology? So if someone were to ask you, what is biblical theology? How do you explain that? Right. So I, I actually have a book entitled, What is Biblical Theology? Perfect. That was <clears> an easy segue. Book, there we go. And in that book, I, I um, suggest that a good way to de- define the task is uh, it's the attempt to understand and embrace the perspective of the biblical authors, particularly their interpretive perspective. And you might, you could use the word worldview for that, you know? So we're trying to understand the biblical author's worldview, and we're trying to embrace that worldview. So to get at that, we want to understand um, how they've interpreted earlier scripture. So if we're dealing like with David in the Psalms, how did he interpret Moses and Joshua and Samuel and any other scripture he has available to himself? And then, however it is that he's interpreting those earlier books of the Bible, that's how we want to interpret him, and that's in turn how we want to interpret later scripture. And um, I really believe that um, Jesus learned to interpret the Bible from Moses and the prophets and the psalmists and sages, and then he taught his disciples how to interpret the Bible, and then in the writings of the New Testament, they're trying to teach Christians, um, churches, how to interpret the Bible. So... Uh, that's how I would define biblical theology, and and then at that point we're thinking about what what the building blocks of a worldview are, and that would include things like the uh, the broad backstory, sort of the overarching meta narrative, and then understanding how symbols um, uh, interpret and exposit and summarize that narrative, and then understanding how uh, behaviors and particularly uh, worship practices and culture-building practices, how they enact that wider narrative, and um, 
and what those say about where the story is going, where where the the meta narrative is expected to land in at its you know with its story arc, where it's where it's going to terminate. Uh, so, so that those are some of the things that that I would want to think through in in terms of what's the what's the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors, and how do we how do we how do we embrace that for ourselves? Yeah, that's super helpful. And so, what you do with this book is you take the um, topic of work and really track mm-hmm. it through these four main movements of salvation history of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So just, I, I want people to read the book. I don't want to cover it all uh, in our conversation today, but I, I do just want to help people think through this because I think many will have not thought about this or thought incorrectly and as a result, unbiblically about this. So, so one of the things that I have noticed in teaching on work uh, throughout the last 10 or so years of preaching is that there's this really common misconception that work is the result of the fall. And so you hear yes. people th- say things like, well, I just can't wait for Jesus to come back because I'm just so, like, it'll be so nice to not work anymore. And, yes. and, and so one of the things I really appreciated is that, that you correct the perspective on that. So talk a little bit about work prior to the fall and the impact that the fall has on our work. Yeah. Um, if I could go back to the previous question for just a second, and then sure. I'll, I'll address the one you're asking. I think this story component is what really distinguishes uh, biblical theology from systematic theology, where if we were going to do a systematic theology, we might take everything the Bible says about work and synthesize it all at once. Whereas with biblical theology, what we're going to do is we're going to think through um, all of this in its appropriate place in redemptive history, so to speak. And so um, uh, the, the, the... mistaken approach to work that you just described is really helped by thinking through the Bible story and recognizing that God put uh, the man and the woman in the garden, and he put the man there to work it and to keep it. And in that setting, it's prior to the um, prior to sin, prior to death, prior to God's words of judgment, um, prior to the, the futility and the affliction and the brokenness of the world. So work starts uh, perfect. It starts very good in the, in the very good creation. And then it experiences the same frustration that the whole world experiences in being subjected to futility, to use uh, Paul's Romans 8 phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also um, there, there's this sort of already not yet uh, inbreaking of the, the future kingdom that uh, believers experience by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit. And, and so the story arc, you know, it starts good, and then it gets bad, it gets messy, but then it's going to end good. And when we look at the, the teaching of the Bible on the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and new earth, um, we can expect to do work in the new creation. And so uh, having this, this wide-angled story, you know, we all, we all interpret our lives in the context of some bigger story. And, um, and I think the, the more thoroughly we can think through the Bible story and apply it to particular aspects of our lives, uh, the more biblical we'll be in our approach to, to um, how, how we're living. Yeah, that's good. So before the fall, uh, there was work. And then mm-hmm. after the fall, because of the curse that God speaks in Genesis chapter 3, one of the things I've always said is that, that our work now works against us. Um, it's difficult and um, laborious and all of the things that it is. So maybe digging a little bit deeper specifically on how does Christ 
now for those of us who put our faith in Jesus and are under grace and in Christ, how does that impact or redeem, in a sense, uh, the work that we do, regardless of what it is? Yeah, so um, uh, Jesus comes as, as the Son of God, and one of the interesting things that is uh, established by Luke's genealogy is that there was a real sense in which Adam was the Son of God. And this, this whole dynamic sets up um, the, the, the typology or the relationship between the first Adam and the last Adam, between um, Adam in the garden and Christ uh, come as Son of God. And um, I think that uh, if we think of Jesus as the image and likeness of God, as the New Testament identifies him to be, and then we go back and look at Adam in the Garden of Eden, what this does is it deepens our appreciation of, of what God intended when he made a, a man and a woman in his image and likeness and put them um, it, in, in the world uh, to, to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth and, and to subdue it and then to have dominion over the animals. And ultimately, I think what God, what God wants is his own character and authority and way of doing things reflected in all the world. I think that's why he wants the man and the woman to fill the world with their offspring and then to uh, subdue the world and exercise dominion over the world. He wants them to do this in his stead the way that he would. Um, and, and that's what Christ has come to accomplish. And uh, through, the, through the death and resurrection of Jesus and through... Um, the righteousness that he has demonstrated and lived out, it's, it's as though the, um, um, the chains that bound us and, and prohibited us from accomplishing that Adamic task have been broken, and the powers to which we were beholden uh, that also were working against us and keeping us from accomplishing that Adamic task have been defeated, and then this massive debt that we owed to God has been, um, has been paid. So in all these ways, the redemption of Christ uh, liberates us and then sets us an example um, for how we're to go about carrying out the task that God originally gave to Adam in the garden. Hey, sorry for interrupting the conversation, but I wanted to tell you about uh, a project that I've worked hard on over the last year and I'm very excited about. It's my new book, Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Uh, time in our culture is one of our greatest commodities. And one of the biggest time investments for pastors is certainly sermon preparation. Uh, but what if there were a way for you to write better sermons in less time? And that's really my hope and my prayer for my new book, Eight Hours or Less. Uh, it's a step-by-step -step guide for improving your process and being the best steward of time uh, that God's given you. And so if you have not yet had an opportunity and you've been blessed by the podcast, uh, it would be a huge blessing to me if you would uh, run over to Amazon.com or uh, my website, RyanHughley.com, and pick up your copy of Eight Hours or Less. Well, one thing I know is a few minutes ago when you said that there will be work in the new heaven and new earth, there's a bunch of people that just were so discouraged by that sentence. And so, uh, so tell me a little bit yeah. about, give us hope, man. So there's going to be, there's going to be work in the new heaven and new earth. And, uh, yeah. so we still going to dread Mondays. Like, how is that going to play out? Help, help, help us understand you know, a little bit about like what, what will work look like in the new heaven and new earth? Right. Well, so, um, when I, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a big league baseball player. Mm -hmm. 
And God just didn't build me for that. Ultimately, I didn't have the foot speed. I didn't have the arm strength. I didn't have the pop in my bat. Uh, but I loved to play the game of baseball until I got to college. And in college, what previously had been this joy and this dream became drudgery because they just they worked us. You know, they um, we we practiced as much as the NCAA would allow, and then the coaches. They sort of set it up so that if you if you really wanted to improve, if you wanted to get ahead, then you had to do more stuff on your own outside of practice time. Yeah. And uh, I was worn out. Uh, I felt like I wasn't getting any better. I was exhausted. And that's what uh, made it begin to become a drudgery. So I, I think what we can expect is is what it was like for me playing baseball as a kid, not what it was like trying to play baseball at the University of Arkansas. That's good. Um, good. And, and I know that, you know, people, I know there, people don't, people don't choose a vocation because they start out feeling like, oh, I really hate all this, these aspects of this job. Um, typically, people are attracted to a particular line of work because there's something there that they resonate with or they feel like I was built to do this. And um, I think what we'll feel, what we will feel and feel in the new heavens and new earth is I was built to do this. And all of the things that frustrated me about having to do this prior to the resurrection have been removed now. Um, my body is not breaking down because I'm getting older. Um, uh, my, my inability to manage my time and my lack of discipline, these character flaws, these things have been resolved. Um, and, and all of the things that, that used to thwart me have been taken out of the way, and I have this joy of accomplishing a task. And, and that is so fulfilling. Mm -hmm. That's good. I had the exact same experience uh, with college football as well. Loved it all through high school, got to college, and um, all everything that I loved about it was just completely mm -hmm. stripped away. <laughs> So I'm, yeah. I'm, what I hear you saying is that I'm going to get to play football again in uh, huh? the new heaven so. and new earth, and it's going to be great. So, um, so let's you've you've been a, you've been a very good. This has been very good in helping us think theologically. Maybe shifting gears a little bit pastorally, um, not to sure. force a false dichotomy between those two things. But if you could put that pastor hat on now, like when you have, I'm just curious about how we can delight in our work in the midst of uh, the toil that comes along with it. Because as much as Christ has redeemed our work, he has not yet returned. We're not in the new heaven. We're not in the new earth. And the bottom line is that work is just difficult on a lot of days. So how would you counsel people to be able to delight in the midst of that work, even, even though there's still a lot of toil to it? Yeah, this is where I love the book of Ecclesiastes, yeah. um, which which pe I think people get lost in the vanity of vanities, and, and they can get discouraged. But there's a refrain that runs through that book that's repeated over and over again, where Solomon says, there is nothing better for a man to do than to eat and drink and to enjoy his work. And then in various ways, he says, this is God's gift to you. If you can do that, that is God's gift. And then he'll talk about people to whom God has given riches and he's given them health, but he's not given them the ability to enjoy what they have. And, and so in all these ways, Solomon, I think, is, is saying to us, I know it's frustrating. I know it feels like death is making it all where it's, it's futile. And yet there's, there's 
significance here, and you have the opportunity to enjoy God's gift to you and to rejoice in Him and to know Him and to, to take delight in the, the little things of life. So I think that eat, drink, and enjoy your labor, for this is God's gift to you. Um, that's, that's one of the, one of the um, things that, that I think people should take away from the book of Ecclesiastes. And then also with that, it's really interesting that in, this, in the chapter on the resurrection, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, mm-hmm. Paul concludes that chapter saying, um, therefore, um, basically what he says is, that because of the resurrection, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So, you know, I don't know all the ways in which uh, the work that you and I are doing right now and having this conversation is going to have ramifications in the new heavens and new earth. But because I believe the Bible and because I trust the Lord, I believe that it is going to have ramifications and and remembering those kinds of things, uh, and it, it gives us perspective, and it it lends significance to what we're doing. Yeah, that's good. What would you you know? There's been a there's a really big push, I think, especially amongst uh, younger generations, millennials, whatever. I know that that we we bag on the millennial generation so much, um, and so I don't right. mean to do that in any way. But there's a very big push for passion in our work, mm. and it's important to. Mm to do what you love and to love what you do. And so I wonder what you think about that. Do you think that it's really important to be passionate about your work in order to glorify God in it? Yeah, you know, I was just listening today to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, uh-huh. and he's got this great, it's actually in a section on marriage and divorce. And he says, with anything that you do, there's an initial thrill. And then, and then in anything... Uh, after a little bit of time, that thrill is going to wear off. So he he talks about, for instance, uh, a young man in the in the Royal Air Force learning to fly. And initially, there's this there's this great thrill in learning to fly. But as he does this day after day after day, uh, the drudgery is going to set in. But he he goes on to say, um, if you quit and you go away, you you don't you don't allow yourself the opportunity to settle into the quieter more sober, more lasting, and deeper pleasures of, of whatever activity you're dealing with. And, and he's particularly talking about marriage and the way that people fall in love, and then the thrill goes away, and they give up on the relationship, and they lose the opportunity to have this ongoing, lasting, deep, and um, enriching relationship that just fills up every corner of who you are. Um, and 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 I think that what's true of marriage is also true of work, that um, there will be these these joys, these pleasures of the long, slow obedience um, and the, the the delights of, of the, the deepened friendship that has that has gone on now for decades. Uh, you'll have the same kinds of experiences, analogous, analogously speaking, um, in your work as you continue to do this. Uh, year after year after year. So I think I think passion is important, but uh, but we shouldn't expect that to last in any area of our lives. That's really good advice. What would you say? I mean, I think so. I'm a pastor. You're a pastor and a professor. I don't think that people have a hard time understanding how we can make the connection that our work really matters, especially mm-hmm. eternally. Um, mm-hmm. But before I was a pastor, I was a barista, like many good church planters. And, uh, mm. and so I worked at Starbucks and I just remember, you know, so many of these days waking up at like four thirty in the morning and driving in going, this does not matter. Like, 
if this is the sum total of my life that I exist to give people overpriced espresso, like I just don't know if I want to do this. And so what would you say to someone like that who feels like, you know, how in the world does this matter? You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. especially thinking about this large story and this beautiful calling that God has given us as human beings in this world to work. How, how yeah. does, if I'm a, you know, I, don't, I won't even put a lab, label on, but if I'm, I mean, my label was barista. So that just didn't right. feel super like it mattered that much. So what do you say right. to someone who feels like their work just doesn't matter? Right. Um, I, w- I want to say two things. Uh, the, and really, both of these things, in a way, come from Tim Keller. Um, one of them comes from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien through Tim Keller. But, yeah. So I'll, I'll give the straight yeah. Keller first. Um, he told this story about how he met this lady at church and she was a first time visitor. And he said, um, you know, what brought you to Redeemer this, this morning? And she said, well, it's kind of a long story. And he said, well, I'd love to hear it. And so she explained how she had blown it at work. She had, she had made a mistake that should have cost her her job. And, um, and her boss learned of it. And her boss called her in and sat her down and said to her, if we, if we name this mistake as my fault, my job can sustain this. But if, if it becomes known that this was your fault, your job can't sustain this. So he said, we're going to name this my fault. I'm going to take the responsibility for this. And she said, why are you doing this for me? Why would you... Why would you jeopardize yourself to save me my job? And he said, well, because uh, I was guilty before God and the Lord Jesus gave his life for me. And she said that she said, yeah, it's beautiful. She said, uh, she, she told Tim Keller, her next question was, where do you go to church? And, and he said, I go to Redeemer. And she said, that's why I'm here this morning. Um, so, so I just love that story. That's the first one. The second one is... Um, uh, Keller relates this short story by J.R.R. Tolkien about it, it's called Leaf by Niggle. Leaf being a painting, Niggle being the painter. Mm-hmm. And in this story, um, Niggle is um, he's a painter, and he, what he really wants to do is paint trees. He's got this grand vision of a great tree, but he's really good at leaves. And he, and he gets so caught up in the details and so lost in the details that he kind of loses sight of the grand tree. And he works away and he niggles at this thing. Niggles an old English word for somebody who works in kind of a plotting and mm-hmm. not very disciplined, not very systematic way. So he niggles away at this plant painting and he knows that he has this journey to take. And, and uh, the journey is a metaphor for death. And he gets interrupted by his neighbor and all these things happen. And eventually they come for him and he's got to go, he's got to go on the journey. And so he boards the train and um, um, in the story, it's really beautiful. I mean, I would highly recommend reading Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle. Um, In the story, he eventually gets to a a stop on the train that's appointed for him and he gets off the train and in the landscape before him, he sees the tree that he had wanted to paint it, to, to, to paint. And, um, and it's as though in the new heavens and new earth, 
he sees the fruition of his labor. He sees what it was that he was trying to accomplish. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot in those two things. We're, we're, we're trying to be salt and light in the world. That's happening all the time. And again, uh, our labor in the Lord is not in vain because there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. So good. Yeah. I love both those stories as well. Let's, let's talk a little bit about ministry uh, in particular, as there are a lot of ministry leaders listening. You know, um, overwork in ministry and burnout are very big issues. Uh, this has yeah. to be something that you've thought about and wrestled with, especially since you're sure. bivocational in that sense and have five kids and um, a wife and all. It's just a lot to manage. And I think one of the things that's difficult about ministry is that it's so easy for us to baptize our overwork and while well, I'm doing the work of ministry and I'm serving yeah. the Lord. And so whatever I'm doing and that must be good. And so marriages are neglected and sometimes sacrificed and uh, children are not always loved and led well as a result of that all in the name of, you know, quote unquote, serving the Lord. And that's a massive problem. And so yes. <clears throat> what, what would you say would be some specific things that ministry leaders should really do to protect themselves, them family, their families uh, from burnout and overwork in ministry? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, in, I, I can't quote chapter and verse for this, but mm -hmm. um, I can remember Howie Hendricks one time saying in class, he said, you could take a pitcher of water and you could stick your hand down into that pitcher of water and shake it up and move it around and stir up all the water in that pitcher. And he said, but then you pull your hand out and that water's going to stabilize, and it's going to be like it was never there. And he said, he said, in a sense, that's how all of our lives are. Uh, that's that's what we are. And he said, so so we need to wrestle with the fact that um, that that we are not going to be able to go on forever, and that God is going to accomplish His purposes with or without us. And and ministers, we need to recognize that if our marriages are not exemplary. And if our children are not faithful, however you want to render, uh, you know, believing or whatever, uh, however you want to say, if, if our children are not, um, um, if, they're, if they're not living like they have good fathers, we're not qualified for ministry. Yeah. Um, and so um, it's vital that we cultivate our marriages, and it's vital that we be raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And interestingly, in Genesis one twenty eight. Um, God blesses the man and woman, tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Well, they they have to do all those things in order to accomplish the subduing of the earth. They, there's no way they're going to subdue the earth by themselves alone. So they're going to have to have kids. They're going to have to raise those kids. They're going to have to have a good marriage to have kids. Marriage and family are necessary to the task that God gave to Adam in the garden. And in the, in the depictions of the good life in the Old Testament, the blessings of the covenant, uh, texts like Psalm 128, the good life is you enjoy the fruit of the labor of your hands in the presence of your wife and children. So I think it's important uh, for us to recognize um, the fullness of, of these pictures. And then, um, you know, most many of us as as um, as people in ministry, many of us have some control over relatively flexible schedules. Mm -hmm. And and I think that, uh, I mean, one of the things that helps me is I try to work out every afternoon. It, it can't always happen, 
but it is such a blessing when it does. I mean, it, it allows me an opportunity to go and, and exercise my body, which keeps me healthy. Over the long run, I, I expect it to keep me in ministry better. It, um, it allows me to think about something else. It, it's a break from whether, whether we're dealing with crises or studying something difficult or uh, dealing with difficult people or whatever. Um, it's a nice, healthy, uh, refreshing opportunity to renew. And, and we need those things. So I think we should, uh, I think we should exercise. Um, Lewis Perry Chafer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, said one of the sometimes the most spiritual thing a man can do is get a good night's sleep. So, uh, yeah, so I think we should sleep. I think we should exercise. I think we should uh, invest in our wives and children because we want to be we want to be exemplary men. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. Especially, I mean, the rest and exercise are two things that are so uh, commonly overlooked and. Uh, <laughs> I think I think one of the one of the most missional things that Christians could do in our culture is to think more deeply about the stewarding of our health um, because mm -hmm. of the way that diet and um, exercise are so readily neglected or abused or um, and that impacts our ability uh, to fulfill the tasks that God puts in front of us. And I've just, that's been life changing for my wife and I in the last two years, um, being an athlete my whole life and then stopping that and then continuing yeah. to eat like an athlete, but not exercise yeah. like one. That was a really bad combo for me. And, I hear you. Uh, and it wasn't until about two years ago that, you know, we really just said we, we have to, we have to be able to chase our grandkids around and that's not going to happen if we don't get serious about this. And, and it's yep. just made a massive difference. And um, so, yeah, I'm glad you said that. I think that's good. Let me just close with this. How would you, um, I think one of the things as a pastor that I've seen a lot of people in my church wrestle with is, um, so I, I already have a job and I'm working hard there and I'm trying to be, um, you know, a part of my family and invest in that as well. And you as a pastor, you want me to serve in the church in some capacity yeah. and be involved in the work of ministry. And sometimes it's a difficult thing to balance all that. So I know that you can't necessarily put a, a number on it, but if someone were to ask you, well, how, how much should I work or serve in the church? How do you encourage people as a pastor to think about that and to balance their job, their family, and then the ministry within the church as well, all under this heading of the work that we've been called to? Yeah. So I think that, you know, in our, in our society today, so people... People tend to be moving toward, at least it seems to me, uh, more flexible uh, possibilities. They seem to be working from home. They seem there. There seems to be uh, more, uh, uh, I guess, less def less definition in terms of what a work day looks like. Mm -hmm. And and so the the expectations aren't don't seem to be what they were for previous generations. So what I say to people who come to Kenwood Baptist Church and join and want to know how to get involved. I say the best thing for you to do is be here when we gather for worship on Sundays, and if you can get here on Wednesdays, great. Be here when we gather with your eyes and ears open, because um, you know all these people, they all have different interests than I have. They have different gifts. They have different expertise, and I just encourage them. I, I say, you know, you're going to see things that I'm not going to see, and um, 
And I think as you grow in Christ's likeness, you're going to recognize there are needs here that I could meet. There are ways that I could serve. And then I say, you know, I would encourage you to look for pockets of time in your schedule or opportunities that you have, ways that you can get involved that fit with the natural course of your life so that, you know, I, I, I don't want people to, to, to drive out of their way 25 minutes across town um, to, you know, four nights a week. Uh, so that they can be at the church. I'd rather them be pursuing the work of the ministry and and see it as an extension or an organic extension of the ministry of our church in the natural course of their life, particularly as they interact with unbelievers. Um, and so that's going to look different for for different people. I mean, there's a there's a guy in our church in real estate who has just done an amazing amount of volunteer service for our congregation. And, and and that's that's one way that he's helped. There's another guy in our church who um, he he cleans carpets, and he's done at different times, totally different times of day. Um, he's done an a, a, an indescribable amount of cleaning work at our facility um, as he can fit it in through the course of his day as he moves around with his cleaning truck. It's 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 beautiful to watch these guys serve the Lord. And then there are there's you know examples that we could multiply of ways that. Um, mothers with small children help each other and, and that sort of thing. Well, Jim, I really appreciate your answers to all this. I've always found it really uh, refreshing to talk to. So I found this, I, I, when I started this podcast, I expected any interview I ever did with a professor, I just went mm. in kind of assuming like this is going to be dry. Uh, uh-huh. And I, uh-huh. interestingly enough, I have found that Many of, all of actually, anybody that has one foot in academia and also in in the church have been some of, and I want to pay you this compliment, have been some of the most thoughtful and most insightful and most articulate people um, that I've ever spoken to. And so I'm really glad to hear that you're at Southern, and I'm really glad that you're in a church, and I'm sure that you are a tremendous blessing to both. You're a tremendous blessing to all of us for writing this book, and so I do hope people will pick it up as you have in this conversation and in the book, given us so much to think about. And uh, so I just want you to know I'm really grateful for all your labor in that. Uh, Thanks, brother. I deeply appreciate your kind words. Thank you so much. Well, my thanks to Jim Hamilton uh, for this insightful conversation. So, Scotty, tell me what stuck out to you. Yeah, I think... um uh, one thing he he drew this analogy. He talked about playing baseball and how um, it's boring. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, he talked about he he was referring to what work will be like in the new heavens, the new earth, mm-hmm. and he referred to you know playing baseball as a kid was this joyful activity yeah. that was like you're just I just can't wait to go play baseball. It's yeah. just so much fun. And then as he got older, as he got into college and played, it became way more of a uh, task and laborious and yeah. it eventually became something that's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And how he talked about that's the difference between work, maybe work now and, and what work would be like in the new heaven mm-hmm. and the earth. And that feeling of like, man, I was, I was built to do this. Yeah. And even how things like, um, a lack of strength and, you know, exhaustion and growing old, those things just won't exist. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it it kind of gave me a, an analogy of uh, that was helpful in getting excited about what right. work looks like. Yeah. Then, I find too that I was I don't remember ever having heard a sermon growing up on heaven, mm. it, even though I grew up in the church, like a descriptive sermon, like Randy Alcorn's book Heaven. Yeah, yeah. I know I've seen that on your shelf. Um, 
that was reading that book probably six, seven years ago. Honest to God was the first time I think I've ever been genuinely excited about heaven yeah. and this new heaven, new earth concept because yeah. I just had such a vague, like, we're we just going to sit on clouds and like, what, what is this even going to look like? Right. And I think the, uh, yeah, I just I, I think that even a book like this and hearing about work in the context of the new heaven and new earth, it does um, redeem some of my work now, totally. but also makes me long for that yeah. as well. He also talks about, you ask him about sort of, um, maybe it's the last 10, 15 years, but just this sort of uh, emphasis on like, I got to find... Like what I do has to be my deepest passion. Yeah. Like those things have to align. Yeah. It's a big to... thing that millennials are getting criticized for. Right. That's all they care about. And you're a millennial. Yes. Technically. Borderline. I'm in a weird spot, man, because depending on who you talk to, 1980 is for sure the earliest cutoff. Okay. Some people say 82. So I'm in this weird, I feel like I'm a man with no country. Yeah. Because I was born in 1980. <laughs> I don't are. know. Am I a millennial? And am I, I'm like the oldest yeah. millennial in the camp. Well, yeah, but it's nice because you can disassociate with the worst parts of both things. Right. I'm not a part Ooh, of any no, of you I'm fools. Not that. That's yeah. right. But then when it gets to the awesome things, right. I'm for sure. So, anyways, that. so back to that whole passion. Like, yes. what did you think about what he said? And then how do you think about that in your own life as far as having to do what you yeah. like, be super fired up about everything that you do in your life? Yeah, I thought he, so he talked about the joy that comes in longstanding. Um, he, he talked about longstanding obedience mm -hmm. in work and mm -hmm. even tied it to marriages that go 20, 30, 40, yeah. 50 years. Yeah. And there's a unique joy there mm -hmm. that um, is only learned through uh, experiencing what mm -hmm. that what that is like, and so I thought that was a really good perspective mm -hmm. um, to think about uh, to think about what we're doing right now. And mm -hmm. and honestly, I'm so I'm fortunate to do um, right now to be doing what I I love to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that uh, I, I I went through years where that was not the case. Mm -hmm. And where I had to find joy in what I was doing, mm -hmm. as opposed to relying on what I was doing to give me joy. Mm -hmm. And I actually think it it trained me a bit, not to be the hero of my own illustration, mm -hmm. but it my trained, favorite. yeah, it trained me a little bit to uh, to find joy in uh, you know going and opening up a Starbucks at mm -hmm. three thirty in the morning mm -hmm. and dealing with customers who might be upset because you know they didn't get enough foam on their latte. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it sort of trained me to, to, to find the challenge and the joy in that, which has carried over to aspects of my job that maybe aren't like the most fun or that mm -hmm. might be stressful or difficult. Yeah. And so I think that there's a lot to learn uh, in doing something that you just don't like to do. Yeah, I think his point about comparing it to a marriage that endures and the joy that comes from that is really good. And what I took from that is that um, you probably should still be working in a locker room, mm -hmm. like cleaning up accidents. That's really... I should. You missed your calling. Yeah. I, I will say it was very clean when I was done. <laughs> you were so good at that job. It was very job. clean. I threw all the cleaning materials away. Yeah, that's good. Because uh, there's no laundry machine on the on the face of this earth. No, no, no. Those, are, could those, are, that. those are all done. You that, burned yeah, those. I need to... Yeah, I... I almost just said something that would have been slightly heretical. Okay, good. But Thanks. I stopped myself. That good. was that awkward moment you yep. just sensed. That little hitch. Yeah, it was like, ah, mm, no, don't, <laughs> don't say that. No, but, but anyway. I mean, I think, so back to the, the point, I, I do think that even now I get to do what I love. Yeah. I love to preach. I love to lead. I love to pastor. Yeah. And uh, as someone who is quote unquote, like living their dream mm -hmm. and has a job within their passion, 
there are still so many days where my job is not awesome. Yeah. I mean, not, I mean, I, in the spiritual sense it is, but, but from an experiential standpoint where it's still hard, yeah. there's still very mundane parts, you know, that I don't love that I'm not excited about. And so I think it's really important to control expectations around mm -hmm. getting the job that you've always wanted and thinking every day is going to be like a day at Disney world. Cause it's not, no. there's still a lot of days, even in the best jobs that are just like brutal yeah. and you still have days you want to quit. Yeah. And that, I think that, um, starting with that perspective is the secret, I think, to maintaining joy in the midst of discovering, oh, this isn't all, mm -hmm. you know, gum drops and lemon yeah. drops and yeah. all sorts of other kinds drops. of drops, raindrops, <laughs> dew drops. <laughs> yeah. I think I said gum drops. Yeah. I don't know any other candy drops, okay. but. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, as always, you can uh, connect with us on social media and we'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. Uh, you can connect with me on all social media platforms at, at Ryan Hughley and with Scott at, at Scott Holthouse. If you uh, are new to the podcast and you haven't had an opportunity yet, we'd appreciate it a lot if you jumped over to iTunes and left a review of the podcast as all of that helps us uh, get the word out to more and more people about these great conversations and all that we're learning from them. So until next week, thanks so much for listening, and we're excited to be back together next week on In the Room. <laughs>